to Western Reaches, a Toshi Station podcast. We've been away for a couple weeks, busy with life and other things, but we're back now, better than ever, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) I am one of your hosts. (laughs) The joke was that I hadn't known you were going to say that, but we're re-recording part of this, so I had known you were going to say that, so now I can't do my line, so... It's ruined. <laughs> I should have I should have thought of something else to say. Been more creative. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so yes, I'm one of your hosts, Seth. With me as always is Megan. Hello. We're gonna talk about very <laughs> serious books. We are gonna talk about some serious books and some less serious books, maybe. I just realized I have read Leia Princess Voldoran as well. That's good. Yeah, um, <laughs> we, we, we talked about that on another podcast. We had a whole podcast about that. So this week we're doing things a little bit differently. Usually we have a main topic. Our main topic this week is basically catching up on everything we've been doing recently. I said recently a lot there, I think. But we're going to be talking about books and games. Um, That's basically it. If you don't like either of those things, I don't know why you're listening to this in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Because we're great, Seth. We're great. No, like, it's it's a joke, but I do think we have both been doing some pretty important, like, work um in the last month so i think it's i'm glad we're back here but i'm also glad that we both have enough uh other things to do that sometimes we have to put uh the fun stuff aside or for like you know unpaid stuff (laughs) yeah (laughs) sometimes life does get in the way but that's not necessarily a bad thing no so Megan, what have you been reading recently? Yeah, so um, my jaunt into nonfiction continues with a very um, heavy book from Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, we Were Eight Years in Power, an American Tragedy is a collection of his essays from the eight years of President Obama's presidency. It's, uh, I'd read some of his stuff on The Atlantic before and found um, it, it very eye-opening. This was the um, essays he wrote throughout his career, as well as commentary on them um, that he wrote afterward. So it was really um, very, I guess it's hard for me to come up with a word other than eye-opening because he really interrogates the kind of structures of race and racism in America, examines why Obama's presidency took some of the stances it did toward race, and um I can kind of never look at suburbs the same way again. It's really shows you how discrimination and um, uh, segregation are worked into modern America in ways that are quite insidious. So it's highly, highly recommended if you're looking, if you're uh, interested in, in that <coughs> sort of thing. Um I got into his writing through the Black Panther comics, and I couldn't be more happy that it has led me down this rabbit trail of learning a lot more about um, the sort of ways America has failed its people of color. Right. That sounds really interesting and kind of heavy. It's it's very heavy. His his writing style is very readable. It's very like it's impeccably written and uh, really impressive. Just the sentence structure is amazing. So it's it's quick, like it flows, but the concepts are so it's it stuck with me. And there's definitely things in here that I'm still kind of piecing things together. And uh, I think it's I think he's a really valuable writer and i'm glad that um you know i can't say anything about him that's not been said before so i'll just 
I recommend this. <laughs> it sounds like an important read for Americans, I think. Yeah. Um, also an important read for Americans for different reasons entirely <laughs> is Provenance by Anne Lucky. Very important. <laughs> It is. Well, any year with uh, an Anne Leckie book in it is not completely lost to the darkness. So this is the uh, the latest in the Imperial Ratch series. It's kind of a series. Yeah. And yeah, kind of. Yeah, it's like so same universe, different characters. And I really enjoyed it. I must say my favorite things about this book were the ending and... The, uh, you know, not because the book was bad, just because the ending was very exciting. <laughs> that was well done. Yeah. I have a note. I have a note that says, I thought this was a prison break novel, but turns out it's actually National Treasure. <laughs> Which... <laughs> That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> and, and she described it as a comedy of er- or comedy of manners, I think, which it, it definitely also is. It uh, also has some really funny moments for if you've read the trilogy, which I imagine a lot of people who pick this up will have. Like, some of my favorite stuff was the sort of jokes at the expense of the Radchai. Like, there's a one... Radshide negotiator, which is kind of a, an oxymoron itself. And there are several jokes about how she doesn't understand what overkill is, or like, why would you <laughs> ask her for advice about this? <laughs> I really, yeah, I really liked that it shows a completely different perspective from the original trilogy, because the original trilogy, that um, <laughs> because, yeah, in the other books, you get the sense of the Radchai everywhere, and they're kind of, like, dominant and whatever. And then you read this book, and there's one, and everyone makes fun of them. And it's like, you kind of realize that the galaxy isn't quite like, or at least I realized the galaxy wasn't quite like I pictured. I also didn't entirely know if this book was going to be set in that galaxy before I read it, because I um decided not to read anything about it beforehand. And so I kind of went into it being like the cover looks similar so i assume it's in the same galaxy uh and then within like a few pages i was like oh yep 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 it sure is uh and yeah because it's set like not long after the first three books end which is really cool because you kind of see how everyone else is reacting to that um my favorite thing in that book i think was just all of the stuff with the geek and the geek ambassador because she's just so funny yeah, she she and so weird too, right? Like really it's really good alien like world building, but it's also just really comedic. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing of like, oh god, it's just good. It's just good. Um I think I actually teared up a little bit during one of the geek scenes because I got really emotional about it. Um but yeah, I really enjoyed this book. It's a really different tone from the other books, but it's still like so very and lucky, which I loved. Yeah, she has this incredible ability to kind of bring the most um, alien things down to Earth, right? Because I don't, I don't know if this is the same scene, but the the gap bit about how some humans there can grow gills and some can't, and the ones who can't are just doomed to like never see their families again. Yeah, essentially. yeah. It, it was really, and like that's treated with both gravitas and this sort of incredible empathy that is really unique, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, and there was, like, my favorite group of people from... Not my favorite group of people. <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> concepts from uh, Ancillary Justice. My favorite group of people from Ancillary Justice is actually Breck. <laughs> but my second favorite 
is um, the people that think that Earth, or like their look, they think their planet is the human home planet. Oh, yeah. Because humans are so far from Earth. And like, I loved that concept, and I'd never like heard of that in science fiction before. And I, I really thought that was almost as revolutionary and as memorable as like the ancillaries themselves. So the fact that that's like a plot point here, I felt sort of gratified. Like, Yes, I recognize that, like, kernel of an idea, and now she's using it a little bit more, and I really like that. Yeah, that's a really cool idea, and it's really not used that much, really. Um, I like, yeah, how kind of <laughs> petty everyone is in these books, because yes. they, they are all, like, political gain and, like, manners and stuff, so they get really petty about really, like, silly things to us, but you also understand why they're really mad about the stuff. I love it. I love it so much. I just, as soon as you said petty, I just pictured... Ingrid's brother immediately. <laughs> yes, oh my god. <laughs> Everything he does. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. If you if you like the other three Imperial Ratch, I don't know, books, the other ancillary books, read this because it's it's good. Yeah, and Ingrid is so she couldn't be more different from Brack, but I also love her because like especially by the end, she's absolutely like a hero like she does heroic things but she's also at one point like okay, I have to do this fast or else I'm going to start crying. <laughs> like yes. she's She's so, like, human, right? She's so real about it all. She is very different. She grows so much. I really appreciate her character growth. But yeah, yeah the fact she would be like, Definitely. I need to cry right now is so relatable. Yeah, the, the fan fiction where she meets Breck is probably out there somewhere. I haven't found it yet, but as of right now, I want to. Oh my god, yes, that would be so good. Oh, so good. <laughs> All right, so yeah, um, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, was definitely a book I read <laughs> since we uh, <laughs> since we spoke last. Um, we covered it in full on Blaster Cannon, and uh, it was fine. Like, I it wasn't um, you know earth shaking in terms of like how I see Star Wars, but there were some cool scenes. That's I don't know. Unless you have anything else to add about that, I think we pretty much. Uh, it's good. If you like Leia, you'll like it. If you're not about Leia before she gets involved with the Rebellion as we know it, um, you know, you can take or leave it, but... Yeah, it's very... I don't know. Very it, young adult. That's a, the, kind of the best way I can put it. It's a, it's a young adult novel. <laughs> yeah, which is not obviously not a bad thing, but... And even canon-wise, it has, like, important things. Um... But it, like writing wise, it didn't. It wasn't earth shaking. Yeah, it. It's good. Like it's it's solid. But yeah, it's not like my favorite book in the whole series. Yeah, though it has a lot of books to compete with, I guess. It's funny. There people were doing uh like best of Star Wars lists recently, and I have to I have to go over my best of for this year because I don't know. I don't, I don't know about like this year's crop of Star Wars books, which really are going to endure um, after the, like, Last Jedi hype, because then, of course, there's going to be all sorts of new stuff, too. But that, that might be a conversation for a different podcast. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, th we'll think about that. And, like, I don't mean endure in, like, the sense that the others are forgettable, just, like, which are going to make the most impact on the fandom. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, so I read, um, a novella, novelette, a small book, 
um, called The Black Tides of Heaven by J.Y. Yang, which was uh, really neat. It was, um, it's a Asian-inspired world with magic kind of like the Force, like everyone can tap into this certain type of magic, and it did some neat stuff with gender. The kind of the idea is that you are born... And um, you were born, like, not necessarily with gender pronouns assigned to you, and then you can choose them at whatever age you prefer to choose them. So I liked the world building. This I definitely felt like this needed to be longer, because I had numerous questions that were, like, kind of nitpicky, but are also exactly the kind of thing that I want to know in <laughs> fantasy. There were, like several magical creatures, or, like, creatures, right? But I couldn't tell from the narrative whether they were magical or natural. Like, is this, like, so this thing, this flying snake thing attacks in the very beginning. And, like, I don't know anything about this world. It's a very unique world, so I, I can't really assume anything about it. And I didn't get from the characters whether this was, like, a magic thing that's, like, never been seen before, and it's, like, super weird to them, or if, like, snakes just occasionally attack the villages and it's kind of like when you've got bears in the woods and you know you just gotta, like, rattle stuff around and they'll go away. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I couldn't really tell how the world worked. Um, and even with the, with the gender stuff, I had questions about, like, because clearly some kind of preference existed like at one point a character's like parent is disappointed that they've chosen the gender that they have but i wasn't clear on why or whether like how the power imbalance was supposed to be because it was obviously not like people who identify as male have the power but there was seemed to be some kind of power imbalance but i couldn't tell what it was supposed to be so i really um i like this i think this writer is definitely like one to watch um but I think this book needed to be longer, and that's that's about that. I think saying a book needs to be longer is definitely a good kind of criticism. <laughs> I I think so. I don't often say that because like I like really tightly woven stuff, but I think this was just like it had a lot of ideas, and I'd be interested to see them explored further. Um, I haven't for some reason my library doesn't have the sequel. They're like it's it's essentially one like together they're the length of one novel and they're kind of you know they're a pair but my library doesn't have the second one so i would like to read it i just can't get it there yet that's frustrating <laughs> and then i added this to the list kind of last minute and i forgot so shout out to nancy for uh recommending me this um i finished the war game which is uh in the Kozigan saga, which I've been, I think, as far as I know, experiencing a sort of renaissance lately with more people appreciating them. And this is uh, the second Miles book, so it's Miles where Kozigan is taking his uh, mercenary squad and cleaning up some trouble. And it almost felt like three different books, because there were like three segments where, like, one, he was in an army camp for a while, and then there was, like, spy shenanigans going on, and then there was the mercenary stuff, which is, like, almost similar to the previous book. So it felt a little disjointed, but I still like this character. I still think the writing in this is really good. Every once in a while, there's, like, a turn of phrase that's just, like, really uh, witty and really um, insightful. It's obviously written by a woman, because there's <laughs> occasional, like, 
references where it's just, I don't remember the exact one, but like someone had obviously underestimated a character and she was like, I obviously, like I knew you would underestimate me because that's what people do with women in power. Like there was some really like no holds barred stuff that also didn't feel preachy. It just felt like this is what really happens in the real world. And this is a character who like, she's a mercenary leader. So she's going to talk about it. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, like it's hard to say something about these that haven't been said before. Um, Miles himself is like a really great character, I think. And I would actually like to, I'd love to see her, do a, a book with, like, a female lead. I don't know that she hasn't. Um, I really like the, um, Miles' mother had a couple books, but I would like to see, like, Elena is the the one, like, warrior lady, and, like, I want a whole book about Elena, because I think it'd be really good. Um, these had, like, very surprising... Basically, there were, like, some unexpectedly violent scenes and, like, some things that were, like, actually disturbing to me, which I didn't expect because the tone of it is generally very, um, it's not, like, gritty at all. There were some parts that I would just kind of caution people. Like, I haven't really heard talk about it before, but there's some, uh, nastiness. But overall, it's a good series. Um, I'll probably pick the next one up when I'm, like, going on a trip or something. But, uh, yeah, it's good. How many books are there in that series again? Numerous. <laughs> Let me see. Um, there are whole, like, spreadsheets and stuff to figure out where to work. Oh, that's intense. V-O-R-K-I. There's, um, like, whole spreadsheets to try to figure out which ones you read in which order and stuff. It's, it's oh a lot. Oh, my God. That's intense. I think I looked it up once and went, um, no, that's too many. The internet tells me that there are 16 of them. That's not too bad. And they're they're quick. They're, it's it's not like um, Foreigner, which is a series that I adore, but it's got 16 brick-sized books. Oh, um, dear. <laughs> so I haven't read them all. But, uh, yeah, these are... They're good. They're... Yeah, it's it's long. I can't even imagine, like, the ones... It says the first one was published in 1986, and the most recent in... 2016, and I, I can't even imagine like what her writing is like in 2016 because you can kind of see it getting better as she goes. Right. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. So yeah, I've been I've not been reading much recently, um, but I just started Updraft today because Megan keeps talking about it being good, and I've read <laughs> one chapter, and I already love it. <laughs> like I am sold on this first chapter already, so I'm really excited to read more when I have time. Um, it's just so weird, like. They just casually mention that the towers are built out of bone that, like, grow, I guess. And, like, she's, like, the center is still kind of warm. And I'm like, what? That's so weird. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I was really glad that that was the first thing that you latched onto because um, we, I think this book was kind of, like, slept on by the new weird community. Partially because, like, I've decided that I'm going to wave the flag for it and just talk about it whenever <laughs> I can. But also because it is, like, it's on this weird line between YA and adult where... It's not quite – it has some of the, like, YA tropes in the beginning, and it doesn't have anything that I wouldn't say a teen could read, but it also just feels like it's it's very um, precise, I guess. So – and my library shelved it as an adult book, so that might add to my confusion. Huh, interesting. But, yeah, I don't think it's a – I don't think it's a YA book with my library either, actually. So, but I was glad that you, like, picked up on that, because it's all – it's, like, it's very, you know, goopy and, like – there's weird creatures, and I, I'm glad you picked up on that. 
<laughs> yeah, that was kind of the bit that I hit it and I was like, this is this is different. <laughs> this is a little bit different. Um yeah, I'm really keen to read more. It, it yeah. The fact that like already the first chapter has gotten me into it says a lot for books because usually it takes a few. That's, yeah, that's, that's really cool. Yeah, apart from like a couple other things. That's basically all I've read recently because I forgot I had library books out and then I saw them on my shelf today and I was like, I should read those. I should actually read those. All right. The uh, the only other thing that I want to like talk about briefly with books is because uh, <laughs> because we keep like talking about it is that Bioware did uh, make it like a little press release about Catherine Valenti's Mass Effect book, um, which will be called Annihilation, and it is I think it's they said it's coming next year now. Yeah. Um, so I believe it was pushed back from this summer, and it will um it will cover the Quarian fleet the Quarian arc. So I've been excited about this for a long time and I'm glad to hear that it still is, uh, it's still going because I was a little worried after all the stuff with like them saying they weren't going to announce, uh, or uh, announcing they were not going to produce any more Mass Effect Andromeda content. I'm glad that this is still happening. Yeah. Catherine Valenti writing, um, Quarian stuff sounds really cool and I'm really keen for that. Yeah, and, like, there could be no humans in this book. There might be no humans at all. Yeah, I hope so. That would be really cool. Alright, so let's talk about games. I'm I'm gonna go first, I guess, because I have a lot of games to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, go for uh, it. Yeah, uh, recently I went to Melbourne Games Week, which I do every year, which is part of the reason why I've been AWOL from podcasting. Um and while I was there, I got to play a bunch of indie games, but also I got to play Detroit Become Human because PS4 like sent out a press release like two days before the convention happened being like, by the way, we're going to be here with some PlayStation games and blah, blah, blah. And I saw Detroit Become Human and I was like, I am going to that. So first thing I did first day in like the media hour was make a beeline to that booth, which had these like glass uh, uh, stands glass boxes with people inside pretending to be androids it was it was stupid but i loved it um so yeah i actually got to play a demo of detroit become human which i did not expect in my life at all it was intense to say the least um it was a very quantic dream um in the same way that they kind of always are but because you're playing as an android or like the UI stuff of telling you to look at things or what somebody's thinking or whatever comes up as like actual robot UI stuff. Uh, so it makes sense in a world. Like it's more diegetic than it usually is, which was really cool. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. And I went through the thing being like, I'm going to do this, like be good for the robot because robots, I love robots kind of thing. And then by the end of it, I was just like horrified at my choices that I'd made, um, which are like, these are the best choices to make. And then at the end of the, the level, I was like, nope. Nope, I made a big mistake and everything is bad. Um, and huh. luckily, I managed to play it with a friend, so she was also next to me, uh, playing her own thing. And I finished it before her, and then I finished it, and I was like, yep, okay, that's a feeling. I looked at her and watched her finish it, and then she looked at me afterwards, and she was like, what? What is this? I am in so much pain. Oh, no. So, did it... Um kind of go out of its way to make things miserable for you or did you feel that the like sadness of the choices was appropriate because one of the things that i i think this one just um might not be for me in terms of tone because it did seem very almost oppressively dark did you feel that it didn't quite feel like that it was sort of like a thing of um you're trying to help someone and by helping them 
you end up screwing things up but your character doesn't care because that's your character's job because you're an android so you kind of like do this whole thing you as the player as a human are getting really invested in it and then um yeah you basically kill the other robot whether on purpose or by accident uh and then your character walks away and you get like job successful and i was like oh i feel really terrible because i that was what i was supposed to do but i didn't want to do that um so it was kind of a mix of it is intentionally kind of dark and it's taking a dark theme there, but the way it was played didn't feel like it was trying to be negative about it. Like it was just kind of showing what was happening there and kind of establishing the character you're playing in the world you're in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was really well done. Like I'm actually really keen for the game now, despite its other issues that it has, um, because David Cage has problems with <laughs> listening to anybody's criticism. Um, but I'm really, really keen to play this game, even if I end up hating it. I think it'll be an interesting experience, at least. So then I went from that uh, straight to another robot game called Rumu, which is this, uh, it's a Sydney, I think, based studio. And they re- they announced the game, like, right before PAX as well. Like, it was, like, a week or something beforehand. And the moment I saw it, I was like, I have to go with this. It's an isometric puzzle game where you play as a robot vacuum cleaner called Rumu, and I, the trailer kind of shows stuff, but I don't really know entirely what the story is. But basically, there's a like the house Alexa, basically, who tells you what to do, and you go and do that. And you're like, I love humans, I love the people who own me, and blah blah blah, and I love everything. So you're this super chipper, cute little robot in this cute world, driving around and cleaning up messes and like solving puzzles to do stuff. And then it starts getting really dark, like real quick. Um, where like you get the sense that like. Pretty much right at the start of the game, you kind of get the sense that the people who own you may be dead. Um, I don't know if that got confirmed or not in the demo Ooh. I played, but you get that feeling real quickly because the Alexa is like, someone so have made quite a mess. Why don't you clean that up? And like, <laughs> this broken glass on the ground or something like that. Um, oh, no. <laughs> so you start getting like these senses really quickly of something is really wrong, but your robot is like really cute and happy about everything. And it's such a gorgeous little world. Um, and then, yeah, Alexa starts getting really intense. I don't know what Sabrina, I think her name is in it. Um, and Rumu's just like, I love being told the truth. Uh, so it's really good. <laughs> and like the 10 minute demo I played, I was already like, I need this game so much. I think it is made for me. I heard, I think from you, that it was like really pretty and cute. And I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I didn't realize it was a- an adaptation of there will come soft rains the terrifying oh, Bradbury story no I don't think it actually is oh. like, <laughs> I, um, I think you like looked it up it, or something <laughs> well so I, I did look up um, there's an article on Mashable that talks a little bit about it and talks about how um, it used to be they had a lot more comedy in the script than like the end script which is interesting oh yeah but uh, I just it reminded me of there Will Come Soft Rains, which is the Bradbury story about um, a house that has been, I think, bombed. And the, like, smart stuff, like the robot uh, lawnmower and stuff, is still going. And it's very eerie. It I feel like that. it might be something like that. Because um, in the trailer, you kind of get the sense that, like, all the humans are dead or something. Um I remember watching the trailer, I think the night before I went to play it with a friend in the hotel room, and we were just like clutching each other, screaming because we were so in love with it. Uh, so <laughs> this this game is probably going to be like my favorite thing that comes out. I can't remember if it comes out late this year or early next year, but it's 
quite close to being released. Yeah, I was going to say, what is it available for? Uh, I think it's, I know it's on PC, because I played it on PC, I think. Um, I don't know what else it's on, actually. Okay. I should know that. I should know these things. Um, probably PS4, because everything is. Um, <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I absolutely know it's on Steam, though, so... Definitely play this game if you like robots, like I do, or if you just like... I think it's going to be quite a good narrative story as well. Um, and it's also just really pretty. So I'm very excited. <clears throat> um, I think that was the only robot game I managed to play there. Uh, there were a couple others that I would just like mention briefly because I liked them, <sighs> but I didn't love them, love them. Um, more robot games for your brand. It's very sad. <sighs> yeah, I need more robot games. Um <laughs> I like how you put, like, four exclamation points after rooming. <laughs> I'm so excited about this game. It's ridiculous. I'll uh, have to check it out. <laughs> you definitely will, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I also got to play Chromolocity, which is another indie game that was at PAX. I think it's a student game. I can't remember. But it's basically, like, it's kind of like Portal, but your guns shoot material that changes... They It changes what platforms do, I guess. Um... So you have to shoot like the right. It's a it's a speed running kind of game that you're running through first person speedrunner. So you're running through these platforms that are like in space. So you have to jump between them, and like the yellow will make a wall sticky, so you can run along it, and like red will make the wall bouncy. I think so you can bounce on it. Um, so it's basically like a really fast pace. You have to like quickly think about what color to shoot something, and keep running, and make sure you don't fall and die. Um, and it's really really fun. It sounds kind of like silly when I put it like that, but it's. So much fun for somebody who enjoys fast-paced first-person shooters, because it's not really a shooter, but you do have that mechanic. Uh, and it kind of feels like portal on speed a little bit. Huh. <laughs> That's a selling point. Yeah, it was... I think they just kind of grabbed me, and they were like, do you want to play this game? And I was like, okay. And then I ended up really loving it. Um, I suck at it, but I really liked it. And then there was also... Paperville Panic, which was a little VR game I played by Ultimus, I think, which is a studio, I think, in Melbourne. Um, and it's basically like you're in a town made of paper, and you are also paper, and everything's on fire. <laughs> and you have to, like, solve the problem of everything mm. being on fire and save people. Uh, so that was, Some, like... <laughs> uh, initial uh, very compelling conflict there. Yeah, yeah, they really just kind of went right for it. It's really funny, <laughs> and it's, like, super cute. So... The problem is it's obviously VR, so you have to have a VR headset to play it. But if you do have a VR headset, it's very cute. And I think it might be free. Cool. Um, and then I also played Valhalla, the waifu bartending game where you serve drinks in a sci-fi bar. Uh, it's like a point-and-click visual novel kind of game. Um, <laughs> how, did, how did you describe it? Waifu bartending. Okay, I thought that's, that's what, what they, you said. They call it. They call it <laughs> Sorry. that. <laughs> I had to be sure. Go on. Yeah. Uh, so I don't entirely know what the story is, but you are a bartender in a sci-fi place and sci-fi bar. And at least in the demo I played, this like girl comes along and she like glitches out and stuff and like talks to you like she knows you. It's very weird. And I think it's going to be like, it's quite an intense game. Um, I keep meaning to buy it and I keep forgetting to buy it, but it was fun. Some of the drink, because you actually also have to make drinks for people, and some of the drink instructions I did not understand, so I kept screwing up some of the drinks. Um, but I might just be bad at bartending, which might be my problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's, like, such a unique anxiety in a game. Not, like, because I, I feel like I would be bad at that, too. Not, like, do I have to shoot this thing? But, like, 
do I have to, like, mix this properly? Like, I, I would probably be bad at that, too. There was, like, the instruction to blend a drink, and that was what kind of threw me. Is like, I know how to shake a drink, but I don't have a blender, so what do I do here? Um, so I gave up on that and made a different drink instead, because <laughs> I figured that would be the best way to avoid my problem. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's 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 been out for a while, I think, um, because people have talked about it quite a bit, but yeah, it, it's cool. It's cool. I like it. I think that also has robots in it, actually. So there we go. Another robot game. <laughs> uh, it's also spelt weirdly, so good luck trying to find that. Yeah, I was just Googling. It's, um, yes, lots of uh, numbers. And the style is interesting. I don't know how I feel about it. It's like pixel anime. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a weird kind of pixel anime visual novel point and click thing. It's a cool mix of genres, um, and I feel like it has some really cool world building behind it, which is kind of why I want to play it, but I'll get it at some point. Um, cool. Yeah, there were two games in particular, apart from Rumu, that I was really excited about leading up to PAX. Uh, there's The Guns Between, which I may have talked about on here before, because I saw it last year, but I didn't get to play it. Um, but it's like a puzzle game that's about a puzzle narrative game that's about two friends basically exploring through a bunch of isolated worlds that are based on their past experiences together um and it's got a time control mechanic so basically the characters just walk along and you can control the time through like the controller and they both each have an ability that helps solve puzzles um and so watching a video of it is kind of confusing like when i first watched videos of it i was like i don't understand how this mechanic works at all and then i played it and it clicked into place really quickly uh it's really gorgeous the music is really pretty the world design is gorgeous like everything about it is so cool and um yeah, I, I'm really keen to actually play the whole game and see kind of how the narrative arcs go through it. That one's on PC. I know that much. Uh, I think it might also be on PS4. I should really be better at knowing what platform things are on. But either way... It's all right. <laughs> I played the demo, and at the end of the demo, they had like a super hard level that you could play optionally. And I, I obviously chose that level to play because I wanted to play more of the game. And apparently only about 30% people finished that level. And I managed to finish it, which I'm super proud of because I usually suck at puzzle games nice congratulations yeah so i was like yeah so um guns between is definitely a game to look out for i think that's out early next year um i've been psyched for this game for like a year or so now and then there's also florence which is a mobile game uh narrative game as well which is made by mountain studio which is which was a started studio in melbourne started by Ken Wong, who was lead art something on Monument Valley. He was lead something on Monument Valley. Um, so he's a really cool guy. And this game is basically about a relationship between two people and how that goes. Um, so it's a relationship game about actual, like, real relationships as opposed to falling in love with someone and making them fall in love with you. It's about their relationship leading up to, like, dating and then also while they're dating – and possibly after they break up. I don't know, because that's not in the demo, so I don't know. But okay, it's got some really cool mechanics. It's kind of like comic style in the way that you scroll through like panels to see what's happening, but different interactions in the game have different mechanics. So in the first like section of the game is you kind of learning about Florence's routine, and so there's like a brush-your-teeth thing where you like scrub along this little line with the toothbrush, um, and then like swiping through um 
your social media and liking and retweeting stuff, kind of that kind of thing. And then my favorite mechanic that they have in it so far that I've seen is one where you, um, when you go on the first dates, your first dates with this guy, uh, you have to like build speech bubbles. So it's got puzzle pieces of a speech bubble and you put them together and then that's you talking. And as the dates go on, the puzzles get easier and easier until it's just like one block that you just put in there. So it kind of signifies talking getting easier, which I found really cool. Oh, that's that's super cute. I, I took a look at the art style. It seems like a really neat style, too. And they were talking about um, like how there are this article that I just glanced at was talked about how there were like flirting mechanics. So I'm glad <laughs> you explained like what that means, because that's that's neat. Yeah. And the mechanic also comes back later on in a really cool way. So I really I'm really, really excited for the full game of this. Um, I've actually played another demo of it beforehand. Apparently they've changed it since then, so I'm really excited to see where they're going with it now. Uh, they also There's just some really cool, ingenious narrative design in it just to give it interactivity when it could otherwise just be like a story, um, like a plain story that you scroll through. So I am really keen for that one. Also because I know that one of the things that inspired, well, one of the inspirations for this is like 500 Days of Summer, which is a movie that has inspired one of my own personal game projects that I'm working on. So I'm like, yes, fellow 500 Days lover. That's cool. And uh, it seems like that goes a long way toward kind of justifying its own medium, despite pushing at the borders of that medium. So, and like, I guess what I mean by that is it sounds like you could very clearly explain to someone, this is why this is a game instead of a comic. This is how the game mechanics contribute to the story. Yeah. I, like, it would be a really pretty comic if it was a comic, but the way the mechanics work that I've seen just gives it a little bit more, uh, gives you a little bit more empathy for the character. It kind of, like, brings you into the story more so than a comic would. Um, which I really, the way it's built is really cool. So I'm really excited for that to come out. Also, more narrative cool. games are always good. Yes. <sighs> so, speaking of narrative games, um, the one non-AAA thing that I've played recently is a narrative game called Anti-Gager, which is great, and the only way I can describe it is the actual, um, description. The formal description is two sisters, a truck driver and a housewife, fend off a kaiju apocalypse in the Great Smoky Mountains with their mech mama possum. <laughs> so it is, it is a um, Appalachian Pacific Rim AU, essentially. Um, oh my god. It's written uh, well, I guess the writer's the name that's attached to it is Sandra Kaw. I believe the writer was someone different, but I would have to look at my other page of notes for that, and I don't have that right now. <laughs> um, it was accessed via a Kickstarter for um, Disabled People Destroy Science Fiction, which is a special issue of Uncanny Magazine. I believe right now the game is only available with the uh, Kickstarter, but it is a neat game. It's um, exactly what it sounds like. It's this very stylized um the music is wonderful i just like had my headphones on and it just was like laughing at the with delight at the music for this game and the writing is really atmospheric the writing is exactly what it sounds like um and it is it basically you're in a, a gager cockpit right and you have a couple buttons including like bite and like shoot missiles but it's otherwise basically just a a choose your own adventure right it's not really like 
it's a narrative game. There aren't really, like, fighting mechanics, per se. But it was fun and weird, and uh, I was glad to have been able to play it. That sounds really cool. Is it, like, interactive fiction? Yes, I I would call it um, very polished interactive fiction. Uh, Like, you can see, I I don't know if it was built on Twine, but it was, like, kind of Twine with, and you could, like, click stuff, you could click images as well. Oh, okay. But, to progress the story, but I I don't know that there were much in the way of choices. You were just, like, following the story. That's really cool. Yeah, it was was fun. Um... So, I played Assassin's Creed Origins for, like, two, three hours, maybe. Basically, I've I played it the day it came out at my brother's house, and then haven't touched it since, because all this other stuff came out. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't like it. I, I generally did. The combat is hard, because Horizon Zero Dawn came out earlier this year, and it was so good at, like making the open world stuff feel smooth. Like, the combat was really smooth. The travel was really easy. Um, I found it easy to prioritize what I was going to do. I found, like, the side quests interesting. So the whole time, I was comparing Assassin's Creed Origins to Horizon Zero Dawn. And the organization of the missions and stuff is quite similar, and, like, it's fine. It's, It's functional as, like, an open world that gives you tons of stuff to do. But the combat is a bit of a mess. And... It's clunky. You kind of, if you lock onto a character, you're kind of stuck fighting them. So I really wanted to be able to, like, roll freely, and I couldn't really do that. Right. So I'm still getting, like, not even getting used to. I was turned off by the combat. But this was a lot of fun to play because I happened, I sort of ended up playing it with a bunch of people. Um, They came out, my brother was having a party, and my mom happened to be in the area, so it was, like, myself, my brother's friends, and, like, some family all together, and so people, I was playing, and people would just, like, wander in and out of the room and, like, commentate and, like, this, like, family friend played for a while, and, like, it was surprisingly good as a social game, and then by the end, when you, the, so I finished the Siwa part and got to, like, the mission where you see, like, Bayak's backstory, there's, like, the really dramatic, like, you know, it's it's Assassin's Creed, so something terrible is gonna happen to this man's family, <laughs> and so by that time, it was, like, 11 o'clock, and it was me and this, like, my brother's friend, who I don't know super well, but seemed like a nice kid. And we were, like, screaming over this scene because it was so, like, heart-wrenching. And, like, my actual mother came out to say, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, it's fine. <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool. I'm, like, a serious game critic here <laughs> yelling about <laughs> this scene. <laughs> So, that was fun, but I don't think that's the typical Assassin's Creed experience. I mean, if you're not yelling about a scene, is it really a good game? Is it even a game? (laughs) Is it even an experience? (laughs) That's really cool. Yeah, one thing, that's kind of why I haven't played many Assassin's Creed games, is um, the combat always turns me off in every single one of the games. Like, I understand what they do with it, like, what the point of it is, but I hate it so much. So much. (laughs) It definitely left me, especially because, like, I'd been playing Dishonored earlier, it left me wanting to, like, take all these abilities from other games and if I just plopped them 
into Assassin's Creed, it would just make it a little more smoother, smooth, excuse me, a little more smooth. Just, like, give me, like, the way the detection works in Dishonored, and, like, let me roll around, like, in Horizon, and... The comparison was not favorable in for Assassin's Creed. But I did really like Bayek himself. Like, I think as a character, when he first came on, I did not recognize him because his hair, like, he's got an angst beard, right? Like, he's <laughs> been sad in the desert for months, so he's got a beard and long hair, and, like, he's covered in dirt. So he doesn't look like the promo pictures because... He's not covered in dirt and, like, with a beard in the promo pictures. Right. So <laughs> I wasn't sure, like... If I was even playing as the same character at first, and then, like, you sort of realize, like, who he is, why he's, like, in the desert being sad, and you see, like, what happened to him, and I think he, so far, I think he's both very, like, it's a bit of a cliche to say vulnerable, but that's what I'm gonna say, and also, like, really tough and, like, sort of almost scary in his own right in the same way, um, uh... Altair was. And, like, the first Assassin's Creed is the, the other one that I know the best, which is why I, like, make the Altair connection. So, characterization-wise, definitely uh, good. If this wasn't such, like, a season of so, so many games coming out, I'm sure I would have played more of this by now. Yeah, that's fair. There are a lot of games coming out right now. I mean, I will say I prioritized Horizon Zero Dawn, because I love it. The, uh, DLC came out a couple weeks ago. I unexpectedly <laughs> ended up getting a review copy, which was really nice. cool. I didn't expect it. But uh, shout out to Den of Geek, who were like, hey, you like this game? You want this code? It's like, heck yeah, I want that code. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, I really enjoyed it. I love the like setting. The environments are beautiful. There are things, if we ever do a spoiler podcast on this, there are things at the ending that I didn't love and that kind of took me out of the story. But overall, I think if you enjoyed uh, Horizon, this is, like, more of the same with also um, really great, like, quality of life additions. So they let you, um, like, pick su- pick supplies while you're riding a machine, oh, which is, God. like, seems so intuitive, yeah. right? Like, you're like, why did we not have I got, that? Yeah, because I, I just started playing it. I've played a few hours more hours than i meant to um and yeah because i saw that like i had ability points and i was like oh that's exciting i saw I had, like 14 ability points i was like why what and i realized there was that whole new tree which took me a while to realize that it hadn't been there the whole time because i was looking at it and i was like these are things i could have done these things and it finally clicked that they were brought in with this dlc but they make so much sense like yeah being able to pick up stuff when you're on your mount was something that i was really mad about before but now you can do it it's great yeah, they're they're very convenient, so that was good. And uh, I love the Banuke. I think that their design is just really cool, so I'm excited to learn more about them. And uh, it was nice to return return to that world. Yeah, I'm really liking it. It does feel like Horizon. Um, it feels a more narratively driven. Of course it does, because it's a smaller world, and it's an actual story-based DLC. Um, I, I did one of the side missions where you have to, like figure out why the basin is flooding or something and then solve it. Um, and that was really cool because it's like this sweet little story where you get recordings and can read um, kind of like the vantage point side quest where you can you get the recording of somebody talking and then you can read their note after that. Um, and so you get like this whole backstory of these characters in this uh, dam facility, basically. Uh, and it's, it's really sweet and I really enjoyed it. Um, I did get terrified when I had to fight 
some snap moss though, but it was fine. <laughs> I got, I think, that my was... biggest reaction with this game was when I first started, I first got into like the new area, and then I had this realization of like, there are new beasts in this, aren't there? Like, there are new machines. And then like five seconds later, I climbed up a thing, and a new machine came like hurtling in, and I was like, nope, I'm good. I'm not playing this anymore. I'm fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah that first one like will mess you up like this is the very beginning there's like the dialogue you get in the beginning which i was just like stunned over so i was just like giggling about this dialogue and like wandered into where that (laughs) machine was and just got yeah that thing almost (laughs) killed me yeah that was a a good good experience but um i died so (laughs) (laughs) i still retain like the whole streak of going where the only way I die in this game is by falling off of things. Like, I still haven't actually been killed by a machine, <laughs> but I have died running off of cliffs trying to get away from machines. So, you know, <laughs> not doing that great. They put that machine in that narrow area where you will fall off the cliff if you back up, which I think was a good way to show how tough that area is, because it's immediately, like, the player has to be, like, on the back Yeah, foot. it it was so, terrifying, and it kind of yeah, just like comes right in, and you're just like, okay, I guess this is happening now. Um, I I've discovered two of the new machines, and I am absolutely horrified for what the other ones are going to be because already these ones are scary. Um, I found like the weird tower things that like send out like boomy signals. Um, the sound of those things is really scary. <laughs> like I heard it from the distance, and. I, I was like, I don't want to go up there. And then I realized that the quest I was doing had me go up there. And I was like, okay, I guess this is happening, but this is terrifying. I forgot how scary, like, how well done the audio design in this game is. That just, it's so, so good. And it scares the heck out of me. Like, I swear to God, one day this game is going to make me pee myself in fear. <laughs> <laughs> it's... <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, so, like, those towers were, I didn't realize this until some, uh, another reviewer pointed it out, but part of what they do is they completely, um, take down the shield of the shield weaver armor, which is, like, the most powerful armor. So, it kind of takes you back to square one in terms of how tough you are, so in that itself makes them so much harder, and I think that was a really clever way to, like, make sure that armor didn't break the game essentially but yeah with that this this dlc is hard like it's there's parts that i'm at level 56 and i can't kill some of these machines yet so it's uh it's tough and i like that because they kind of talk it up like the this part of the world is supposed to be so dangerous and if it was possible for like a level 50 player to just rock in there and take everything out it wouldn't like narratively it wouldn't make sense so i'm glad that they like cranked the difficulty of the machines up so that the story and the gameplay um uh complement each other yeah, I appreciate that, especially because, yeah, once you hit level cap in the base game, you're just like, great, I am as powerful as I can possibly be now, there's nothing else I can do. Um, so I appreciate that they've raised level cap and made things harder. I also am horrified because, like, I'm playing on a hard mode. I'm not playing on hard hard, like, super hard, and I'm also not playing on the new super super hard mode they've got, um, which I do plan on doing at some point now that I actually own a PS4 and I own Horizon Zero Dawn, so I'm going to actually spend time with it. But... Because I'm playing in, like, hard mode, 
I'm scared. I'm so scared. I'm back to where I was when I started playing the game in the first place. We, like, the entire world was scary to me, and, like, any sound I heard, I was like, okay, what is that? Is it going to kill me? What's happening? Um, I'm right back there again with this new area, and I love it so much because I love that feeling. I love when games make me feel things. Um, it's just, yeah, I'm really excited to find more time to actually dig into this DLC properly because it seems like there's a lot in there, like, a lot, a lot in this little place they've given us. Yeah, it's interesting because it takes place sort of to the side of the main game, and it's implied that the uh, you do some of this before, like, the end. Because, like, the way Horizon works is that there's no post-game state. You, you beat it, and then you're put back to immediately before the final mission. So this, I was kind of going through trying to figure out, like, narratively, where does this take place? And I think what I've decided is, and where it takes place, and the best time to play it, if you, like, get this as part of the base game, is both before and after the finale. Because you learn some things that add to it, Mm. in the finale but you also some of the themes are repeated rather than added to and that bugged me a little bit but i think that's something for us to talk more about when you finish the campaign but how did you feel about like playing it after the end game or like where would you put it in your like headcanon in my headcanon i think it's post whatever um like post the end of the game because I think that kind of makes more sense to me also because that's kind of how I'm playing it personally so it kind of just fits there in my head but the fact you talk to certain characters and it means that it has to be pre that um it's I don't know it's weird it's it's hard it, I always find it weird when you get DLC that's like you don't have a post-game state so it's before the end of the game so it always kind of fits in a weird narrative place where it doesn't it's not defined which I guess is just like every other quest in the game somewhat um I don't know. Probably, I think I agree with you. Um, I'll see more when I actually play more of it. But for now, it I mean, considering the level cap of some of those monsters that you have to fight, beast, machines, whatever, it's definitely a late game thing anyways. Like, it's it's a late thing for Aloy, Aloy even, because of her character and her strengths. Um, oh, I can't even imagine playing this on a lower level. It would be the worst. Yeah, I think it would be just, well, the, I think that's the other reason why that first machine is there, that, like, the narrow pass, because it just, like, oh, yeah. early players wouldn't be able to get past that. I didn't Unless, even think I mean, about that. You could sneak past it, you could sneak, I guess, but. You could, but that is very narrow. I'm not sure that, that would, if if you hit a machine you have to sneak past to get into the rest of the thing, it's probably a good sign that you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, that's <laughs> a pretty good gate. And I don't mind that it's set in this, like, sort of strange post-game state. Like, that didn't really bother me. It just was notable. Yeah. It's always something, because it's always written. When you get these kinds of DLCs, they're written with the knowledge of what happens at the end. Um, it was kind of how I always felt with, like, the Citadel DLC from Mass Effect 3. Like, it's it's an important story yeah. and everything. It's his own little self-contained story. But the way it fits into the narrative is, like, with the whole of Mass Effect 3, like, you're not going to do this whole side quest where you have to, like, beat a, um, a clone of yourself, basically. Like, you've got other important things to do than a party and that. But, like, when you play the whole game and then play that, it makes sense, like, pacing-wise. Um, yeah, in so the context yeah. and the rest. See, I always find post-game DLC that technically comes before post-game weird, just because of that. Which is why, yeah, originally when you, like, 
mentioned to me that the game doesn't have a post-game state and an end-game state. Like, you finish it and then go back to the thing. I was like, huh, that's going to be interesting with DLC. So, yeah. Because I also want, yeah. like, stories about what happens afterwards, but I guess they'll do, like, a sequel, hopefully. So <laughs> we'll get that story then. Yeah, well, I presume. Because that goes to, like, like you said, this could be post-game, but then it makes, like, certain things don't make as much sense. Yeah. So, and I think they've said that they're not doing any more DLC, which to me just means they're really, really, like, doubling down on a second game, because oh, they know it'll I sell. I hope so. I, met, I actually managed to meet a couple people who work on the game um, at GCAP in Australia. Uh, one of them was a producer. I can't remember either of their names. This is the worst. And one of them was a quest designer um, slash writer. They are both super lovely. Um, one of my favorite things about horizon now is that the documentation looks amazing <laughs> um i was sitting really? yeah i was sitting with um one of my friends who is like also a documentation nerd and everything and so they were showing like the way they um did the game design document and how they plotted out like areas how they plot out like narrative pacing within the world itself and when they when when he put up the slides for those things i was just like both of us were just like oh my god that's amazing so we were kind of nerding out on their documentation um they put a lot of work into pacing things well in this game and it's really cool even like i was going to the quest designer and he was like gushing excitedly about the other quests in the game that he didn't design but he'd played and loved which was really cute like Having the people working on the game love their game so much is so important. So I I have a more appreciation for the back end of this game as well now. Um, I did like my friend did like make a joke about Horizon Zero Dawn two, and they did not do anything. So I can't confirm or deny that game happening, <laughs> but we tried. <laughs> that's that's cool. There was recently um, somebody posted on ArtStation like their model for the Titan, the big like squid machine mm. and it's a beautiful art it's a guy called alex zapata guy or girl um who did this this robot and i just like posted a picture of it because i thought it was cool and my like game dev friend who is she's going to school for for like game art right now was like does it say there are 6.6 million triangles in this thing like she was Ooh. blown away by, like, the scale of the project. So it sounds like that is, like, that stuff was really impressive on the behind the scenes, too. Yeah, they did a lot of work on making different teams and, like, good pipelines and stuff. They, um, the producers showed, because there's a bunch of different producers, so he was a producer for one particular part of the game. Um, and he showed the pipeline that they had when they went into the game, because originally they had, like, what, like, 16 people on the team? No, 60 people on the team, something like that. It was some small amount. And then they went from that to, like, 130 within the space of a couple months, basically. Uh, and so their pipeline they worked with previously obviously didn't work with this many people. So he showed kind of the before pipeline when they started, and then the ending pipeline they ended up with, which was way more, like, streamlined and everything, um... Very, <laughs> as a game developer who does narrative design and stuff, like this is really cool, like um, really interesting stuff. But it basically showed that they worked really hard to make sure that everybody could do what they were doing the easiest and like make the best game possible. Um, they put a lot of work into making sure their teams worked well, which is just so cool to see. Um, apparently, they also don't crunch there as well, which is lovely. <laughs> I love that. I really want to work for Gorilla now. After talking to some people working there, I'm like, okay. Hire me for the next horizon, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And, um... It is it, impressive. It sounds like they 
like you said, wanted to uh, make it, like, I guess easy for their people to, like, do their own job. Like, everybody seems kind of supported, which is nice. Yeah, that's the impression I got, at least. And I mentioned um, to the quest designer, I think, that uh, I was like, I thought that the Titan would be the final boss. And he was like, yeah, everyone does. (laughs) Yeah. I still... I'm still scared we're going to have to fight that at some point. I want to fight it, but I think it will have to be, like, a multi-part fight. It won't just be, like... Yeah. Like, you can't just, like, find one of these wandering around the landscape. It's got to be, like, a thing. It would be, like, a final boss or something. Like, it would have to be. I think you're going to fight that one in that one scene, but that's just my theory. There's one in a scene? Um, The one scene at the end. (laughs) Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, same. (laughs) Um... But that, like, the thing about the production, it's interesting. I was going to say this before and then lost my train of thought completely. But there's that idiom, like, too many cooks in the kitchen, right? I feel like this kind of project is the case for you can coordinate a lot of people and make it, it won't feel disjointed. Like, if everybody's vision is aligned, yeah, then you can make it work. Yeah, a lot of that is good producers and working to actually do that. Um yeah, it's really kind of cool, like, hearing about how big the team was and everything and seeing how polished and amazing this game is to come out of that. Um, and I don't know, just Horizon continually impresses me. Even even the background stuff is just great. Yeah, and I, I did have some issues with the story, but I think we should probably talk about that at spoiler space at some point. Yeah, we'll do that for sure. Um, so speaking of DLC that actually take place after the game, um, Dishonored Death of the Outsider was an interesting little game. It, again, it's it's not a DLC. I keep calling it that by mistake, and I, I apologize <laughs> to whoever I should apologize for for that. Um, I uh, get the game AP style guide. It, uh, it's like a standalone game. It's just sort of slightly shorter than the others. And it, play, it takes place after. Dishonored 2, and it's this hugely important, like, change to that universe that goes on in this game. Uh, I liked it. I So I played this around Halloween, like, the week before Halloween or something, and it worked astonishingly well as a horror game, because there were parts at the end, especially, that were just, like, really unsettling, and I think Dishonored lore is good, but never quite um, recaptured the, like, weirdness of and again like i use that with capital w of the first game so the bits of like weirdness in this one were definitely appreciated it did something like the central conceit kind of or like the finale conceit was like a thing that i didn't think i would like and they um, convinced me that i think it's okay now <laughs> so that's probably the highest review i can give that it's always interesting mm-hmm. when a game manages to do something you thought you wouldn't like and you don't hate it. Yeah, because well, it was, like, basically, like, The Outsider was very unknowable and alien in the first game, and then they gradually made him, like, kind of more friendly to the protagonist and more, like, open in a way, and this one kind of explains why that's necessary. Whereas, like, I kind of wanted him to be this weird, unknowable, like, symbol of the whales. And this game kind of went, like, no, like, within the internal philosophy that we have and the internal cosmology, here are, like, some arguments for why 
his like humanity essentially is actually an important part of the plot rather than just like a conceit we tacked on to make him more relatable or more appealing, which is the thing I didn't want it to be. I didn't want it to be like, let's make him sympathetic. Like I wanted it to be alien. And I think they managed to do that. That's really cool to hear actually. (laughs) I like, I have no knowledge of these games yet. I will play them. Um, oh, I have a PlayStation now. I can play them on that. Uh, but the way you've described, like, them actually explaining within lore, within the game itself, like, why that's a thing is just kind of cool, I guess? Yeah, it's, I could, like, go on and on about that, but it's not perfect. Um, it's still kind of, like, isn't quite sure what it is in terms of, like, the lore, the tone of the lore, but it, it did good. I enjoyed it. Um, this is a world that I definitely, like, enjoy returning to, even though it's also, like, super grim. Oh, that was the other thing. This one, I actually got some, like, no-kill levels, which was nice, because nice. that's, like, what I normally try to do, but I always fail, because it's so much easier <laughs> to just, like, once you get spotted, you start killing stuff. And, um, with this one, there were a couple new powers that, like, I was able to, like, come up with a strategy, and, like, I did a couple, like, no-kill runs, and the, the robots, there are horrifying death robots in this game they're much easier to kill with some of the powers in this one which is very reassuring because they like actually frighten me so if i could see them as little as possible that would be great so (laughs) (laughs) it was much easier to like combat them that's cool so that's uh i I do wonder what they're gonna do next because dishonored is kind of like it's built around certain themes and certain ideas and those got all tossed around and mixed up in this game so we'll see what they do next i'm really keen to get into dishonored at some point so keen i hope you like it it's it's real dark um it's a little like it's some of the stuff they did was not to my taste but in general i really like the like aesthetic of it Mm, i definitely want to play it for its environmental storytelling because people always talk about how good it is so at some point i need to play it just for that at least yeah yeah and, like, the Dishonored 2 level design, like, all the... I agree with all the, like, praise that has been heaped upon that uh, level design. Yeah, I've definitely come to appreciate good level design over the last couple years. So next week is... Uh, well, not next week. This week, or now, if you have the advanced version, is uh, <laughs> Battlefront 2 is coming out. So there's been a lot of uh, controversy about Battlefront 2. I don't really, like, have anything to say about the uh, the loot stuff that I haven't, like, said before. But I am excited to play the campaign. I uh, am a little worried that, like, the campaign might not be as hefty as I'd hoped it was. But I really like um, – I'm a little biased because I interviewed Janina Gavin Carr, so I'll, like, straight up say I'm a little biased. But <laughs> I think I'm going to like her character, and uh, I'm looking forward to that. I um dived headfirst into spoilers for that campaign because I realized that I'm not going to be able to afford this game for at least a little while because I literally just bought a console. Um, So – I made the decision to actively go looking for spoilers and find out the story on my own rather than just have it spoiled by accident because it's going to get spoiled for me. Um, and reading the campaign spoilers made me want to play even more. Like, it it sounds like it does some really cool things, and I'm really excited to play this game now. Uh, I was keen before. Now I'm excited. So, yeah. Hopefully it's as good when I'm actually playing it. 
That's cool. I, I kind of like that sometimes when, like, you learn spoilers that actually make it better. Like, KOTOR is always my, like, experience that I go through for that. <laughs> like, the twist is the thing that made me play that game, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whereas I went that totally unspoiled, but the twist would have made me play that game. KOTOR yeah, is so. available on, like, every platform now. Right. I know. You can play really, KOTOR on your phone if you want I'm to. really tempted to get it on my phone, but I know that's a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> I know. I don't... It, yeah, I want to replay that at some point, like, formally. But. I just know they'll have fixed the bug I abused on the phone version, so I don't want it because of that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what bug did you use? I managed... I don't know how I did it, but I managed to break the game so that the, like, speed boost you get never slowed down, so I had, like, double damage, and I moved real fast... The entire game. It was great, but I don't quite know what that bug was and how I exploited it. I just know that I did. Uh, so it made the game a lot easier for me. <laughs> Wait, is that a force power? or? Yeah, it is a force power. Oh, it's supposed okay. to like wear off after a few seconds and then yeah. have a cooldown, but it just didn't do either of those things for me. Speedy, speedy yeah. character. That's funny. <laughs> so yeah, you probably have a Battlefront episode coming from us in the nearest future, so look out for that. Um, yeah, I think that's everything we have for today. Yep, that's actually, uh, we talked for a bit longer than I expected, and I think now yeah. I'm ready to go to sleep. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm keen to go lie in the sun, honestly. So, yeah. Jealous. Megan, where can people find you online? Um, so people can find me on Twitter at blog full of words. I write for denofgeekstarwars.com, Star Wars Insider, and Sundry. I have three articles out in Insider number 177, which is available now. Go get that, because it's going to be rad. I can be found on Twitter at Wanderlustin, W-A-N-D-E-R-L-E-U-S-T-I-N. You can also find me at notsafwork.com, and I should have a couple uh, teacups and one-ups coming out on Toshi Station soon about the games I played at PAX, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and for now, we'll see you in a couple weeks, hopefully. <laughs> and don't forget to check the Western region.